So radical pedagogies, cooperative work, art and entertainment, care, new forms of defending and revitalizing indigenous traditions, environmental awareness, territorialized resistance, developed into new forms. So what is extraordinary, was extraordinary about these resistances was that they encompassed the anticipation of realities beyond the boundaries delineated by the state, the law, and capital. So obviously, when this happens, then we need to pose questions to ourselves in what ways we're going to understand this process. So we did, and we are going in the future. So the premise of the book is that for the past two decades, we are witnesses a turning point in autonomous mobilization or movement activity. And this requires that we also produce a shift in the way we think about these mobilizations. So I would say that the key feature of these mobilizations is not that they are autonomous, because obviously autonomy has a long tradition and it's clearly the case that when we resist power, at least initially we will be against the state. But as I just said, that autonomy serves for the purpose of prefiguring alternatives with political imagination. And this is why I call autonomy the art of organizing hope. I think autonomy is the organizational process of prefiguring new worlds. So when John Holloway published his book, Change the World Without Taking Power, he produced a revolution among revolutionaries. The book opened a crack within radical thought. Revolution today, claimed Holloway, means precisely the opposite of the traditional formula, to reject state power. And two opposed views emerged in response to Holloway's proposal. And this was reflected, as you know, in various international workshops, talks, journals, etc., etc., in many languages. On the one hand, the book was embraced and celebrated as informing and engaging with autonomous movements, particularly Zapatistas. On the other hand, it produced some bewilderment among Marxist circles because of the radical departure from traditional views on the relationship between reform and revolution, the party, the working class, and the state. Since then, I think these two camps have been maintained where they are, and they have been sometimes accused each other of not understanding the reality of capitalism and the reality of resistance. One uh, romanticizes autonomy and doesn't really grabs how capitalism works. The other reifies the power of the state, diminishing the possibility of radical change that is, does not have the state as the locus for change, the main locus. So this debate infected the Latin American political atmosphere, particularly when these main transformations took place at the end of the 90s and the beginning of the, the 21st century, with the arrival of that and with the arrival of the so-called pink tie to power. But what happened then was that the autonomy debate that had been activated in 94 with the Zapatistas and other struggles was weakened and even abandoned by many movements which saw in these governments the possibility to realize their dreams. The debate about autonomy became the debate about the state 
the government, economic policies, and regional um, reconfiguration. And many embrace the 21st century uh, socialism. However, what they missed, I think, is that with the arrival of the left and center left to power, autonomy became a state problem. We didn't abandon, really, the problem of the state. The state then needed to incorporate and integrate the radical demands of grassroots movements into policy in order to maintain order, in order to control and de-radicalize the movements. But the problems of the movement, and this is the moment in which I try to think how we understand this question, can we change the world without taking power, was not, I think, how we can change the world without taking power, but how is the state going to try to capture, co-opt, and integrate our radical demands? So as it happens with the state in process of mobilization, translation took place. And by translation, I mean power struggles, processes, and dynamics, mechanisms through which the state incorporates the autonomous ethos into institutions, policy, and the law, because as I said, the, the state needs to produce order and integrate these demands. The state, and I am borrowing some kind of a form of expression from post-colonial theory, decolonial, Rolando Vasquez, he suggests, with reference to the violence of modernity, that the state needs to render invisible everything that does not fit into the parameters of legibility of its territory. And I think this is the process of translation when autonomy was incorporated and supported by the state, but de-radicalized somehow, inevitably. So the pink type translations obviously were much more benevolent than the neoliberal translations. Because initially, these governments wanted truly give voice to the movements. But in the end, this demand, as I said, has been de-radicalized and produced some kind of deformities. So for example, the incorporation of indigenous cosmologies of Wembibir into the development program of the, Ecuador, uh, the, the Correa's government is really very strange in the sense that it's a contradiction in terms, since the indigenous people are against development. Uh, so all these things can happen. But what this shows is autonomous practice is always at risk of being appropriated by capitalist, colonial, patriarchal powers. And it cannot be otherwise, because in my view, the state is the political form of capital and mediation in the process of resistance. So despite important achievements, the governments are failing their people in many ways, betraying what uh, they hoped for and uh, after they got in power. So where does this leave us? So in the book, I try to move away from this binary position that I don't think it was John's intention with change the world without taking power, but it happened. Uh, movements against or versus the state and try to offer a different conceptualization of autonomy that moves us away from this binary position and engage with the prefigurative quality of autonomous organizing. So I think my argument is that the art of organizing hope 
takes us beyond the controls of the state, pushes towards something that we cannot explain. The state can translate something into policy, but hope cannot, never, can never be perfectly translated. But this does not mean to avoid the state. So I will try to explain these ideas. So when we talk about this turning point in social mobilization, for me it's a turning point from claim making and opposition to prefiguration. And Marianne McElvert calls this the prefigurative turn. Yeah? So is that prefiguration has become the movement's strategy. And this term has been used by Gramsci, for example, when he talks in his piece Soviets in Italy. He discusses how revolutionary signs are being prefigured in the present. In the 60s, Winnie Brains used the term to portray the anarchist politics that, um, of the new left. Um, at the moment, at present, young radical scholars are producing significant uh, accounts of prefigurative politics. So indeed, prefiguration is the movement's strategies in the sense that their politics are not consequentialist, but they conflate means and ends. So the transformation is happening as, I mean, John has been to Occupy right now, as they produce this moment of um, creation of the alternative. However, I believe that there is a problem with some of the theorizations that understand prefiguration as something that uh, has to do with the enactment of a new society at organizational level. I think what they lack is a problematization of the process of prefiguration within the context and particularly within capital. So I, I don't see any reference to uh, the problems or the struggles that these movements have outside the process that they are uh, experiencing. So that's why in the book I propose something that I call the prefigurate critique of political economy. Someone can argue that the critique of political economy is per se prefigurative because attempts to criticize, to produce a critique of the way in which political economy views the world. But what I try to do by connecting autonomy with hope is to try to emphasize the, this aspect, what do we need, what kind of method we need to try to understand how we can create alternatives that not only negate capitalism but also navigate through the contradictions and produce excess. So in the book, and you can read that by yourself, I offer a kind of a literature review looking at the ways in which in the West autonomy has been understood. And I found four ways. One is negating, and obviously negating or negativity constitute a key moment in social antagonism. So we have, for example, refusal to work, uh, materializes explicit workers' motto in some <coughs> sectors of Italian working class in the 60s and 70s. Negative theory of communism, refusal to work occupies a very important place. Negativity, as in Adorno's negative dialectics, Ranciere's definition of politics or autonomy as disagreement. The second way, which in general comes together with negation, it's creativity or creating, autonomy as a creating process. And then we have obviously Castoriadis' notion of autonomy comes to mind and understanding of socialism 
as nothing else goes than the conscious and perpetual activities of the masses. Also, autonomous Marxism and Negri emphasize the positive moments of working class autonomy, the power of creative affirmation, the power to constitute new practices. Um, and more recently, the concept of the common names new practices of conviviality and solidarity that are emerging. The third form of understanding autonomy is as contradiction. And these are um, analyses that look at existing forms of insubordination vis-a-vis -vis the system or, for example, hegemony or the contradictions of labor and the state, labor and capital, or the inner connection as we um, learn from open Marxism and the contradictions that that brings about. Uh, and finally, autonomy as excess. We find authors who, scholars and activists, who talk about excess. For example, Harda Negri, they talk about the biopolitical context and that value cannot be measured for it overflows, quote, the threshold of political economic control. This is a biopolitical excedent. And also the Puebla School, if I may, theorizes excess by engaging with adorno-negative dialectics. For example, Tisha uh, talks about the particularity as expressing the surplus of the existing confronted with the dominant system. Okay? So these four modes of understanding autonomy are fantastic. And it says, they say a lot about what is actually happening. However, I have three questions and three concerns. One, each of these are important, but they present a very partial understanding of autonomy by emphasizing one aspect of the other. Sometimes they come in pairs like negation and creation, but then perhaps stops there. The second is, question is, to what extent can we universalize these understandings of autonomy? For example, can we talk about biopolitical exceeding when we think of the predicaments of landless rural workers who join the MSET to struggle for land against this position? Should not be debating about autonomy that includes a specificity of Latin America in a way that is not confined to being Latin Americanists. And the third question, can these views on autonomy be applied to indigenous autonomy? And this is a huge question I will not be able to address now, but just to explain why I have this question. The generalization of autonomy as a universal struggle with, against, and without the state is problematic for indigenous people. Indigenous people don't see the state as the center for their critique or as a tool for emancipation. Indigenous autonomy reflects a praxis based on a cosmology of the world that excludes the state, <coughs> per se, and regards the political in a completely different way. So it is not anti-state, but it's against a system of coloniality and oppression that has the state as a form of impose, imposing and maintaining this coloniality. So for example, the Zapatistas demanded the legal changes required for the recognition of indigenous self-determination. And these were agreed in the San Andres Accords. And then the good government councils were created after the disappointment of the Zapatistas with the government and after 
two years of silence and a change of a strategy. Self-determination also means different things for indigenous people. Uh, emancipation doesn't mean nothing for Bolivian Aymaras. I don't think that this is a term that people will use. Collective identity, for example, when we talk about negative identity, collective identity is a tool for resistance. Why? Because that identity has been oppressed. So by defending the fact that I am Aymara, I am producing a radical act of resistance. And so on. And main, one more, uh, the past, for example, new aspirations are necessarily filtered by traditions and customs because the past should be translated as memory, not something that happened in the past. So actually there is a different experience of time as well. So I could put more examples, but um, being these three, bearing these three issues in mind, the fragmentation of the way we, the fragmented way in which understand, we understand autonomy, the un problematic that comes from universalizing, and the problem of indigenous autonomy, I propose that in the book that we can not sort out all these three problems, but attempt to produce some kind of proposal that will address these problems by engaging with block principle of hope and other works. And why? As I defined autonomy as the art of organizing hope. I think our focus should be in the way autonomy engages with process of prefiguration and mainly with Bloch's, Bloch's idea of the not yet. Bloch was interested in finding out why people, quote, are attracted to something, this is Levy, which is not yet there. And he suggests that the human urge to navigate the unknown and engage with the not yet reality by means of anticipating utopia, is anthropological. This is debatable, but what he tries to say is something that is truly human to try all the time to search for something that we can anticipate. We are daydreamers, naturally. So what I do with these four forms of autonomy that I just mentioned, that I found in the literature, negation, creation, contradiction and excess, is that I try to translate them into the key of hope or in the key of hope. And in the key of hope, like in music, as a composer, when you say in the key of whatever it is, I will use hope or I use hope as the basic material. So everything, the other concepts that I use are modified by the category of hope. And like this, I think we can move away from the dilemma, autonomy versus the state, and bridge also indigenous and non-indigenous autonomy. So briefly, when we talk about negation, what we can do when we translate negation in the key of hope is to discuss what Bloch proposes in terms of the real. He says the real is process. So as every philosopher Block begins with the idea that we need to reject the world that is wrong. The no is undefined and empty, but contains within it the not yet. When we say no to something, and you know, John has written about this, and Bernard as well, we are already confronting the possibility of something else. 
So hope is a principle based on an understanding of reality as an open process, unfinished and unclosed. But the not yet is not an illusion or a fantasy. It is an unrealized materiality that is latent in the present reality. And I found this very compelling. Uh, Mittelman argues that Bloch puts at the center of his philosophy a category that which does not exist as if it were an attractive thing. Think about it. How can we attra be attracted to something that does not exist? And this is the impulse, the human hope. So in the book, I used the example of, of the Zapatistas uh, because the Zapatistas uprising was both an act of refusal and an act of hope, and they proposed you know, an interpretation of neoliberal globalization as a war against humanity. We all know that. And they say, I'm quoting, against the hopelessness of neoliberal globalization, against the international terror representing neoliberalism, we must rise the international of hope. Hope about borders, language, colors, cultures, sexes, strategies, and thoughts of all who prefer humanity alive. The international of hope. And that's um, Marcus. So this characterization is replicated in subsequent documents. In the key of hope, the second mode of autonomous organizing is concrete utopia. And I think this is a very important concept in Bloch that we can use when we think and we practice our own resistances. Hope is an expectant emotion that drives humans to engage in actions that can anticipate what does not exist in the presence. And he argues that what we can experience is anticipatory illuminations that facilitate the action towards the anticipation of our dreams. So there are two important things to say about concrete utopia, not to get confused with other terms that are also used. First, both criticized, uh, sorry, Bloch criticized utopian thought that was not transformative, that was not anticipatory. So concrete utopia must be differentiated from abstract utopia. Abstract utopia performed as a collective imagination that will be realized in the future when expected conditions arise or following the party's plan. Instead, concrete utopia is a collective act of venturing beyond, here and now. Concrete utopia is praxis. Concrete utopia is of an anticipatory kind, which by no means, says Bloch, coincides with abstract utopian dreaminess. That's an important differentiation. The second differentiation that I want to make is between concrete and real, which is a bit more complicated because we tend in normal life to use these both indistinctively, these terms. So for example, uh, Eric Collin Wright uses the term real utopias to describe how new movements envisions new worlds and can transform capitalism. He uses the term real as synonymous of feasible. Alternatives can be evaluated in terms of their desirability, viability, and their achievability. But in Bloch, the notion of utopia is different. He's not concerned with the feasibility of utopia or the moral principles that should guide them, but he problematizes the real. Reality contains within it what is not yet. 
So the question is not whether it's feasible, but whether we are capable to throw ourselves into the process of inventing what does not exist. So in the book, I used December 2001 and the movements in Argentina, 2001-2002, to show how different experiences of resistance led to the creation of concrete utopias by neighbors, and as you might know, um, the um, human rights movements, the Piquetero movements, and recovery the movement of, of uh, recovery factors. What they did is to shape absences. They actually did not invent something new. They rather discovered the lack, the lack and acted collectively to construct this concrete utopia. The third mode of autonomy, contradiction, can be translated in the key of hope as the necessity for disappointment. And again, I think this is crucial for the process of prefiguring. What Bloch argues is that hope is not confidence, it is chance and contingency, it's surrounded by danger. He said, hope is not confidence, if it could be disappointable, if it could not be disappointable, it would not be hope. That is part of it. Otherwise, it would be cast in a picture. And this is really true. If we really realize our hope is not hope anymore, we have to move on. So I use the case of Bolivia to discuss these contradictions, how the movements navigated the contradictions vis-a-vis -vis the state mainly. And I look at, particularly because in Bolivia, this, the plurinational state was created as a great achievement to integrate the demands of uh, indigenous communities. So what I look at in the book is a different forms of translation. So we had the neoliberal translation that tried to transform, for example, the Federation of Neighbor Councils, the Fejubi in El Alto, uh, into their actions into a tool for neoliberal governance through a process of decentralization. Then the crisis of that translation and obviously a process of demediation and the remediation and reappropriation of autonomy by the state through the process of um, the process leading to Evo Morales to power. And with the Tipnis conflict, the, that probably Jeff will talk about that. I'm not sure. I don't have a clue what they're going to say. Um, uh, we see that the contradictions that inhabit the plurinational state are there very visible. This means on the one hand, the creation of a plurinational state representing indigenous people, and on the other hand, Andean capitalism and neo-developmentalism and extractivism. And finally, the fourth mode of autonomy, excess, can be translated into the notion of the not yet. The not yet, an unrealized or an existing oppressed reality. And I say that because for indigenous People is an oppressed reality that already exists. And I think this is very important because we have not discussed yet this problem. And at some point, we will have to address it, probably not today. Uh, Bloch argues that the not yet constitute, constitute a component of the present. Moreover, he says, a reality that does not con contains an alternative within it is not real. Think about it. How is it possible that we have only one alternative? 
that is unreal and impractical as well, and not truth, or there are another truth. So I take this example of the movement of uh, the Semterra in Brazil and explore how Hope drove the six founder members of the MST to venture beyond the wire. And this is kind of a metaphor that I like as a title of a book, actually, on the MST, but I like to use the, the cutting the wire or venture beyond the wire in this double sense. They actually, in their mystica, cut the wire any time they uh, occupy the land, but I think also they made possible to cut and break the demarcation of reality, what was possible and was impossible, and then they really contested what was supposed to be objectiveness or the objective reality of landlessness. The struggle of the landless in Brazil so did not have an objective possibility of success, rather the opposite. 100,000 families suffering hunger and the big landowners speculating with the price of the land don't see any possibility to change that. However, they contested this situation and started developing you know, strategies in order to change that, as every movement does. My point is that there were not objective conditions, but it was really possible that the landless became people with the land to live on. So what is possible depends on the capacity to transcend the distinction between possible and impossible and to engage with latent alternatives that inhabit the present open reality. If the landowners are speculating with the price of the land and all these massive you know, hectares of, of land are empty, obviously there is something there that is telling us that there is a possibility that this is not the case, the own negation of the same situation. Take unemployment. It seems to be a fact However, unemployment is only a fact in a capitalist society. If we don't have a society with wage labor, no one will be unemployed. So how fact is the fact that unemployment is a fact? We need to refer to the circumstances, meaning we are denaturalizing a situation that we seem to believe is a fact. Okay, so all this brings me to explain that in my conceptualization of autonomy, these four modes come together, and I see autonomy as the art of organizing hope. Now, I need to say one more thing that I don't want to abuse. Is it, is it okay if I say one more thing? Um, that is related to how is it that we are actually changing anything after all that I say. You know, some people might be thinking, yes, but we still have transnational corporations, we have, still have everything there, and we still have you know, a lot of um, institutions, power, etc., etc. What I value about um, our way of looking at things, if I may say, and also blog, is that we are focusing or we are trying to kind of deconstruct the reality that we believe to be truth in order to find another truth beyond the facts. 
So one thing that is important is that we believe that capitalism uh, is a fact, and obviously there is some capitalist synthesis or some ways in which capital manages to become more permanent, clearly so. But what I found in this way of thinking about hope and autonomy is that somehow what the art of organizing hope does is contest value from within. I feel autonomy navigates the veins of capital all the time from within, contesting value. If you think about it, value is an unrealized materiality. It actually does not exist as such. The substance of value is an abstraction, abstract labor. So it's an anticipation of what's going to happen in the future. And with hope, it's the same. Hope is an anticipation of what we believe can happen in the future. So we can argue that Actually, these two are two unrealized materialities. So what we are doing with our autonomous struggle is contesting the continuation. And this is perhaps what John means when you talk about cracks. We are somehow interrupting the continuation, the expansion of value, but counterposing hope, which in fact is anti-value in motion. So... Obviously, this is non-factual because we don't have the tools to see, to physically see this struggle that happens at that level because we are operating at the political level. So in order to see that, we do need a critique of political economy that contests the terms in which we are framing our debate. In short, I would say that a prefigurative critique of political economy is a method that could, I'm just you know, thinking about this, um, I didn't stop thinking about this, is a method that allows us to see how the content of the not yet is fought over. What is not yet is not yet. So it's possible that other things happen and we are struggling for the content of the not yet. So my question is not can we produce radical change without taking the power of the state, but how do the state and capital co-mediate the radical prefigurative power of autonomous organizing? How does the state translate concrete utopia into governance tools through the law and policy? And what are the limits of the appropriation and institutionalization of autonomy by the state? And more, even more, what is the scope for untranslatability? And this is something that if there is translation, we need to think there is something that cannot be translated. And how is this excess produced and what is it about? So, to finish, the question whether autonomy is possible is tricky and is not useful. The answer is positive, yes, it's possible, only if we conceive possibility as something that is lurking within the unfinished nature of reality. This is why this is not a question posed by the movements, and you correct me if I'm wrong. 
it is not a theoretical question. Possibility appears in front of us as an opening upwards and forwards when we contest, when we cut the wire. So to immerse ourselves into the dimension of the not yet become is challenging because, as Liar suggests, radical hope anticipates a good for which those who have the hope as yet lack the appropriate concepts with which to understand it. We feel it, and it's intuitive. So in the end, it is a question of educating, learning, and organizing hope. And I hope that my talk, and in this evening, <laughs> will contribute to that task. Thank you very much. Hand over now to Jeff Weber from Queen Mary. Um, Jeff's one of a group of polymaths here on the panel, so it's very hard to fit him into a, a box for anybody else. Sociology, a bit of political economy, a bit of uh, political theory. So um, I'll hand over now for what Jeff's going to say um, in response to Anne Cecilia. So I want to thank Anna for inviting me to uh, participate in this. It's a real privilege to be commenting on such an important book and to be sharing a panel with a set of panelists who have contributed so much to both the critique of capitalism theoretically and a critique of capitalism in praxis. And I think one of the most pleasing characteristics of Anna's book is that it holds a total disregard for the disciplinary boundaries of academia and its range of learning from philosophy, from history, from sociology, from politics, from economics, and across uh, the, the Spanish literature coming out of Latin America itself and European theory across the last 150 years or so is really exemplary, I think, in a lot of ways. And another characteristic of this book that I think needs to be celebrated from the start is that it's a bottom-up perspective on the turn to the left in Latin America that we've seen. I mean, it has different datings, but at least since the late 1990s, and if we want to start with the Zapatistas, which Anna would probably do, then we would start in the early 90s. But it really picking up, at least in my view, in the late 1990s, early 2000s as a regional, as a regional wave. And What's important, I think, about Anna's corrective or antidote to much of the existing literature is that much of the existing literature across all of these disciplines has tended to focus on the period after which center-left regimes typically or self-described radical left, different lefts across South America in particular, after they've already been uh, successful in coming to office in the context of a commodities boom driven by China's dynamism and basically evaluating their redistributive policies, their participatory uh, democratic policies, or lack thereof, depending on the perspective. But what gets lost in that, I think, is the entire period of crisis and extra-parliamentary rearticulation of the left in the late 90s and early 2000s, which made it possible to even uh, consider the possibility of center-left regimes coming to office. Indeed, it became a prerequisite of electoral success 
um, for even conservative parties were running at least rhetorically against neoliberalism because it was so discredited at that, at that point. So what Anna does is she begins ends with popular movement. And this allows her to take very seriously the role of self-organization of the oppressed and the role of self-emancipation, although she doesn't want to use the word emancipation in the case of indigenous peoples, but the, but the role of self-emancipation of the oppressed inside of her, uh, her story that she's telling. And she refocuses our attention on a core set of movements rather than reducing our optic of the new left to variations between regimes and different party types. So I think this alone makes her book an important contribution. <coughs> and she focuses very particularly on a set of movements uh, that she suggests uh, articulate in the strongest way her notion of autonomy as the art of organizing hope, drawing on Ernst Bloch. So she begins the empirical parts of this with the varieties of struggle in a very particular moment in Argentina in 2001 and 2002, the financial crisis of historic proportions, looking at the Picatero movement, which obviously predates uh, the actual climax of the crisis beginning in the late 1990s in the provinces and then moving in to the capital uh, of Buenos Aires. And she talks about the unemployed workers movement, the recovered factories movement, um, and so on, uh, the neighborhood assemblies, all as different components of what she sees to be expressions of autonomy understood in the particular way that she has articulated it already. And then there's the question of the Zapatistas, of course, who are perhaps the most well-known, um, beginning in 1994 and tracing their trajectory all the way from their initial opposition to the North American Free Trade Agreement to, uh, to the present period. And then the left indigenous struggles of 2000 to 2005 in Bolivia, which were strong enough in the extra-parliamentary period to overthrow two neoliberal presidents in under two years, Gonzalo Sanchez de Lozada in 2003 and Carlos Mesa in 2005, laying the basis for the election of Evo Morales in December 2005, the, the first indigenous president in a country that has an indigenous majority, one of only two in Latin America, the first indigenous president since the founding of the Republic in 1825. And she talks about, finally, the role of the Latinx rural workers movement, the MST, in Brazil. And all of this through the lens, both of their own organic articulations and theoretical practices in relation to uh, all of the debates around autonomy and the state that preceded it, and in particular, her reading of, of Bloch. So I think these are, indeed, these movements are a powerful entry point into understanding the kind of laboratory that Latin America became in terms of practices of anti-neoliberalism and practices in certain instances even of anti-capitalism in different ways. And I share much of Anna's uh, admiration, albeit slightly more critically, of certain of these m movements. Um, so I think on all of these points, we are very much... Uh, in, in, in agreement, sorry. And, um, and I think also, I mean, one of the, one of the uh, I have to admit, one of the surprises of the book, because I always, I always these days enter a new book 
on autonomism, even by a friend, with some trepidation that there will be nothing new here because um, it seems as though everything has been said about autonomism and horizontalism and the debates in, in many respects often repeat themselves. So I think it's extraordinary that she says something new about uh, autonomism, which she promises but actually delivers, unlike many of the recent uh, texts on this, on this topic. And she begins by trying to move beyond the, the debate of autonomy in the state, although I'm going to, in a moment, bring it back to this question uh, in hopefully a way that's not just a stale regurgitation of old things. And she focuses on moving past this through, through the lens of prefiguration uh, in particular and, and insisting and succeeding in not ignoring the way in which state, capital, and the law uh, distort and create contradictions within expressions of autonomy, seeing all of this as internal relations. And the final thing that she does, which is novel, I think, uh, in the autonomy debates, is to try to see what's universal about this idea, tracing it to the Council of Communists of the early 20th century, socialism and barbarism in, French, in, in, in May 68 in France, in the uh, workerist and autonomous Marxist traditions in Italy, and then all of the various expressions in the Latin American cases, while trying repeatedly not to obliterate the differences of different movements, and in particular insisting on the specificity of indigenous notions of autonomy and how they can be uh, contained within this concept without uh, simply subsuming them into this universal uh, category. And the final uh, point um, that I want to make in terms of the, the key contributions of the text is I think there's a really brilliant uh, introductory part of the chapter which is a sort of misleadingly titled Mexico because it doesn't begin on Mexico until close to 15 pages into the text. And that first 15 pages is very good because it talks about Latin America in general and brings really in the, the violence involved in neoliberal restructuring, which is often occluded, not just in mainstream accounts, but many uh, economistic accounts of, of Marxism, in the sense of uh, really bringing in the way in which the physical annihilation of layers of the left through, in particular, the, the example of Argentina between 76 and 83, the wiping off, uh, the disappearance of huge organizational layers, and the generational effects that that meant for uh, left rearticulation and the delays in that process. And then what she calls the virtual disappearance of labor through uh, the processes of economic restructuring that eroded the social contract uh, uh, achieved with all of its contradictions in the uh, semi-Keynesian import substitution industrialization model in parts of the region. But I think this is really an important way in which she talks about the construction of neoliberal hopelessness and then points to these movements in as, as, as the response to this as an articulation of what she calls insurgent hope, which I think all of that is extremely good. Now I have five minutes, and so I'm going to spend the last five minutes with a series of uh, uh, comradely uh, criticisms and provocations so we can keep this uh, interesting. So two of the two original ones uh, are, are quite specific and they're, they're more empirical analytical questions about Latin America. And then I'll offer a couple on, that are more that are bigger questions about strategy 
The first is, it's not obvious to me that all of these movements that she talks about, while all of these movements are important, that they can easily be captured by the category of autonomy. And the Zapatistas, and at least some of the Argentinian movements, it makes a lot of sense to talk about them in this way, because they've uh, organized around these concepts and have contributed to these theoretical positions in themselves. Um, so I wouldn't dispute the idea that, that autonomy is an important concept for uh, Zapatistas and autonomy is an important concept, particularly for certain parts of the unemployed workers' movement in Argentina. But the landless rural workers' movement, for example, <clears throat> I think, because autonomy is often uh, set up against uh, uh, what can, you can call classical traditions of Marxism or um, closed traditions of Marxism if you wanted to be more critical of this or what have you. But I think the MST internally operates on the basis of democratic centralism, has very clear associations with the Workers' Party, and has aspirations for state power. Um, so I think the question there is, is quite difficult to square with... Um, this is very dramatic. The, um, with the question of, of autonomy. Um, in Bolivia, I think, too, there's a question uh, in which it's not, it's not quite as obvious to me uh, as Anna suggests that it might be that these, are, that these are easily configured into autonomous movements. She focuses mainly on the question of the Amara, but I think if you look at the totality of social movements in the Bolivian case... Uh, the questions of taking state power were very much more uh, alive and to the forefront of these movements um, than, than is suggested in this, in this text. Um, I mean, with different ideas of what that would mean, but um, I think it was, it was a characteristic of the Bolivian case that they were even able to ask that question, because I think in the Zapatista question you have a defensive struggle in uh, a southern state of Mexico in which the actual probability of taking power of the state was not really a, a... I mean, you can say theoretically that you're not going to take state power and you're opposed in principle to it, but it wasn't even a practical question ever in the history of the Zapatista movement. So in Bolivia, it was forced to be a question, given the situation of 2003-2005, which I think is important and not captured necessarily. The last, the last of these first two points... Uh, I'm, I'm probably going slightly uh, over, but I'll be quick on this last point, is to, uh, of the initial points. Um, in terms of identifying the specificity of indigenous movements, I understand uh, this is always tricky because you want to uh, uh, express the particularity of those movements and the centrality of racial oppression, the centrality of the particular reproduction of internal colonial relations in the project of decolonization. And I follow you with all of that part of it. But I think there's some points at which you talk about indigenous cosmologies and Aymara cosmology in a much too homogeneous and smooth fashion, in the sense that there is extreme class stratification in uh, the Aymara community, and the idea of reciprocity might exist at the level of of um, abstraction in communities, but you use uh, part of the reproduction of the movement towards socialism party in the way that it's been done right now is particularly in alliance with petty bourgeois, incipient bourgeois, Aymara formations in El Alto, which is sometimes, which is a city 
in, 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 uh, in Bolivia that is particularly at the heart of this. And there's all kinds of very, very complicated political contestations within that community that I don't think are captured in talking about the way that Aymara people think, because I don't think there is a way that Aymara people think. And indeed, Aymara as a concept is a linguistic construction of the 20th century. Uh, if you go, so the idea of ancestral traditions going back is quite difficult to trace, although I see strategically why people use it. It's important that we think about it historically as well, about what, how it actually traces out. Now, the two big questions. Um, <clears throat> I think the argument that autonomy is strategy through prefiguration uh, is not convincing uh, to me. And it, it operates mainly at a very high level of abstraction. And I think the politico-strategic question is in many ways missing uh, from the book. And it is one thing to say, and here I agree with you, that many Marxists and what I would call left nationalists or left populists have succumbed to the political illusion that winning electoral victory is actually, uh, is actually conquering state power, is actually escaping the power of money capital, and that you can easily manipulate the state towards the capitalist state towards social ends. I agree with you that that is a political illusion of elections. But the argument in the book comes at times dangerously close to the social illusion of the self-sustainability of social movements uh, and their spontaneity and the spontaneity of revolutionary politics and transformative, uh, transformative change. Because there's almost no way in the analytical framework you give us at this level of extraction of, for example, measuring strategic failures, partial or total of social movements. It's, there's only the key of hope. And so the Argentine 2001-2002 is seen even after the normalization and institutionalization of capitalism under Kirchner as not having anything gone wrong in the original movements. And it seems to me, and you, and you charge a friend of ours, Juan Guerrero, with, with uh, uh, what you call, uh, I'm not quoting exactly, but revolutionary, uh, it's a revolutionary idealist utopia that he's measuring it against. But I think there's some middle ground there between measuring strategic failures, counterfactual histories of what might have happened, and actually learning from that history, which is quite important, rather than just saying, there's hope and there's still hope. To, I mean, obviously, that's a caricature of your argument. It's much more complex, but I'm running out of time. So this is my last point, um, is that I think there's still, um, there's still a need for what uh, the, the late uh, uh, French Marxist Daniel Bensid calls strategic hypotheses. Okay? And these hypotheses are not models uh, from the past to be copied. They're not instruction, use manuals, etc., but they are a hypothesis to a guide to action that starts from past experiences, which is all we have to look at, but are open to modification in the circumstances that we're now in. So they don't simply replicate what's in the past, but they also try to learn from the past. And I want to insist, this is the most provocative thing to say on the panel probably, that the conquest of political power at the, at the nation state is absolutely a priority in the current period, and it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily follow, because I, I'm convinced by Simon Clark's theory of the state, but that doesn't tell me that I don't need to 
conquered the state in the first strategic move towards uh, revolutionary transformation, which obviously needs to be followed if we're not socialism in one country people to a continental and global strategy of confrontation with capital. But we need more than autonomy and prefiguration to even, to even calculate our failures and see where we're going uh, next. And so the concepts of things like transitional demands, united fronts, struggles for hegemony, wars of position, uh, should not, I think, be so easily uh, tossed into the dustbin of history. They still needed in not as use manuals, but as the past that we have to instruct us to a future uh, in which we can see the things that we all share as a, as a goal. Thanks. Sorry for going a bit more. Thank you. Um, okay, without any further ado, then I'll hand over to Professor Bernard Bonnefeld from uh, University of York. I uh, want to talk against hope, against the idea that we are living in hopeful times. Uh, that is not as a critique of Anna's conceptions of, of hope, or the Spanish endorsement of these. It is a critique of hope uh, understood conventionally, traditionally, or uh, conformistically, if that's the right way to pronounce conformity. So, in a contribution critique of political economy or negative critique or critical commentary always comes with the proviso which says, be as critical as you want to be, but do not destroy hope. Give us hope. Give us hope that for a better future. I don't want to do it. I don't want to satisfy that hope. What hope is there, really? Who is the angel of history that will rescue us? If we say that there is hope, then we are investing in the idea of some sort of subject. Maybe calls it the revolutionary subject. Or investing in some sort of theology, the state, the party. Somebody who is there and has the power to rescue us and to deliver us. The imagined rescuer doesn't, however, exist. The imagined rescuer cannot be hoped for and cannot be relied upon to deliver us. The creation of such a figure, the creation of hopefulness, as it were, is, is comforting in a way because it says things are bad but not hopeless. Within the bad world, within the false world, there is hopefulness that it might turn out to be good in the end. This sort of notion, as it were, takes away our responsibility for the world in which we live and, and which we create. It also takes away from us responsibility to change it because we invest in a rescuer, in the image of somebody who will deliver us, yes, 
when things are really bad at the adverse, this rescuer will rescue us, will save us with our privileges, with our status, with our jobs, with our, well, with our wages, so that we continue to have a wage-based or salary-based access to the means of subsistence. So I don't want to, you to think that responsibility, your responsibility to, for this world, can be abdicated. Nor do I want you to think that you are not responsible to change it. That there is the angel of history. That there is some movement within history, some law of history, that like in the Catholic Church is Rosary, that one bead goes through your hand after the other, one event after the other. At the present, thereby, is only conceived as transition <coughs> towards some fantastic future of liberated grandchildren and nephews and, and nieces. I think the critical theory of society has to be principled in its denial of the illusion of social fantasy. It has to refuse to participate in an imaginary game, the future as hypothesis of the present. It is very easy to be hopeful. Look on the bright side. Take the bright side view, but never once look the bull into the eye, wearing it red colors. My charge, this bull. What does it mean to look the bull into the eyes? What do you see? It's easy to be hopeful, to look on the bright side, and move on much more difficult to confront the idea that capitalist wealth entails the pauper in its concept. It's much more difficult to see and to understand that the dispossessed, the masses of the dispossessed, is the presupposition of capitalist wealth. It's much more difficult to accept that our wages, our income, our connection to this society depends on the profitable accumulation of somebody else's labor power, who depends for tomorrow's wage-based subsistence on economic growth. So it's much more difficult, as it were, to do away with two basic and omnipresent elements of everyday politics. The figure of the scapegoat and the promise of an improved future. The figure of the scapegoat is easily understood. The capitalist, the banker, the money man, the American. <laughs> Merkel 
easy. No need to look into things. We can talk about things with hope. What, however, does it mean to live inside these things? To live inside a conception of wealth which is based on dispossession? where the only access to the means of subsistence is, if you're lucky in some areas of the world, is by selling your labor power and not your kidney. That is the conception of wealth. much more difficult now to find a scapegoat, the banker. Is he or she not a rational subject of a perverted world? What does it mean to scapegoat somebody? Ooh. Here we have criticized the capitalist, and now capital is open for the hegemony of the left. Ooh, let's employ capital for fantastic socialist aims. Proudhon seems to is alive in Greece, in Spain, where hope has the color of pink. Pink Podemos, pink Soriso hopeful movements that by means of technical fine-tuning by means of being elected by means of anti-austerity becoming government, a political achievement has been made for demos pink is hopeless Syriza pink is hopeless too. There is the promise of an improved future. No critique of the euro, just fiscal fine-tuning. No critique of capitalist wealth, just better distribution. No critique of who produces capitalist wealth, just the demand that everybody should be fully employed as some human material for some other person's profit. That sort of hope is commonplace. <coughs> that sort of hope creates the idea of rescue without grasp of society. That sort of hope is quite similar to the orthodox understanding of history as some sort of automatic thing that unfolds. Where redemption is at the end of the day. Justice comes at the end of the day. Capitalism should not really be criticized because it is transitioned towards socialism. And since in this conception of history, socialism is what is aimed for, one cannot possibly criticize the transition. What hope? What is the working class fighting for? Do you think it, the working class, or to be a member of the working class, is an ontologically privileged position? The maker of history? Or is it a great misfortune to be a dispossessed laborer? What is the working class struggling for? Big ideas? Socialism? Communism even? 
or is it struggling for food on the table? Is it struggling to pay the gas bill, the electricity bill, the mortgage, service the interest? The working class really does struggle to meet subsistence needs. That is its struggle. To achieve, to achieve subsistence. It struggles not for refined ideas, spiritual things. <coughs> it struggles for crude and material things. Most basically water, food, subsistence. The working class, in that sense, really does struggle in itself in order to have life. It struggles against the reduction of lifetime to working time. And in this struggle, it confronts. It has to confront the masters of the world, the overlords of the world. For they live their wealth is based. Their wealth comes from those who are tied to work because they do not have any alternative access to the means of subsistence. And their struggle, the struggle of the overlords, has to be to maintain the dispossessed status, the dispossessed existence of the working class, to retain it as a seller of labor power. In this struggle for existence, the true picture of the past flits by. When we look out of this window, go through London, we have monuments and more monuments <coughs> to all sorts of, of victories, glory, the glory of the world. What these monuments mean can only be experienced in struggle. What is the smell of death? What does it mean to be conquered and decapitated? What does it mean to have the wealth, gold, the silver stolen and then be paid with the silver that has just been stolen from you? Here are the monuments of victory. And these monuments reveal themselves in struggle. When the sense of the past, when the sense of, the pa of a past that was not glorious at all, but smelled bad of decaying corpses, of poverty and slums and misery, when that past is experienced, experienced at the point of struggle, what does it mean to be redeemed in this struggle? Socialism or simply staying alive? For if there is a struggle, and I'm quoting from Walter Benjamin now, we can only have hope on the condition of our understanding that even the dead, he says, will not be safe from the enemy 
if he wins. And this enemy, he continues, had not, has not ceased to be victorious. I argue false hope, conformity, the belief in hegemony, let's capture the states and use capital for socialist purposes. Proudhon, as I said, is still alive. The idea of social democracy, of hegemony, of the indignados, the forces behind it are real. Since we depend for our livelihood on an employment contract, the demand for an employment contract and wage-based existence is existential. Social democracy, the idea of hegemony, indignados, express that in their critique. You rob us of our capitalist existence by cutting us off from the means of subsistence by loss of wage-based or salary-based employment. In that sense, these movements, these parties, the Podemoses of the world, manifest a reality, a veracity. <coughs> what they, however, do in addition is to say, if we win, we know what to do. The fetishism of capital of a world that, as it were, manifests itself beyond our control, behind our backs, is really a nonsense. All depends ultimately on the balance of class forces. It is the balance of class forces that decides whether the world works, the capitalist world works for the worker or works for the capitalist. It's only a matter of fiscal fine-tuning. Vote for us. We know what to do. We know how to rescue you. We know because we are the angel of history. And there will not be a storm that takes us back from you. We stay with you. <coughs> Vote for us. So austerity transforms from neoliberal austerity to socialist realist austerity. It's a change in name. A pure ideology. Nothing, I argue, will corrupt the anti-capitalist movements in Spain and Greece more than the idea that they are moving with the current. Nothing will corrupt these movements more than the parties, the Podemoses, the Syrisas in government. Because government means responsibility. Government means a depoliticized society. Government means depoliticized socio-economic relations. Government means no to self-determination, no to experiments, no to uncertainty. And struggle is uncertainty. I have not heard Syriza say that the factory workers should occupy their factories. I have not heard Podemos to say that the landless should occupy the land. It cannot come from Podemos. It cannot come for Syriza. 
because it would undermine the rationality of the very idea of democratic representation of the state as a distinct form of social organization, distinct from society. Election victory means quietness in society. Election victory means responsible action on behalf of somebody else, but not by somebody else. Election victory means the transformation of the left into a responsible agent of state power. Marx, commenting on the Gotha program, said, I'm smelling a rat here. I'm smelling a rat because this is the glorification of labor, this Gotha program. It is the idea of a laboring republic. It is the idea of the efficient, effective economic organization of labor. Where, he says, do we find in the Gotha program of German social democracy the idea that workers should not be dispossessed, that workers should own their property, that property should be common property. Where shall we read in the Gotha manifesto that property is a, a common good? So hope of the Syrisas, the Podemoses, of the Pinks of the world really is an investment in hope that assigns to the working class the role of a redeemer of future generations. Work hard now, build up the economy, make it internationally competitive, meet the criteria of profitability and labor unit costs for the sake of guaranteed employment and prosperity by means of wage-based income in the future. This sort of response is very rational. It rationalizes the system against which the parties officially march. It takes away from the oppressed something most important. It takes away hatred. It takes away disquietude. It takes away responsibility for themselves, for their own lives. Hatred is not nourished. Hatred is condemned. And yet hatred is the force of struggle. Without it, Uncertainty, the idea of liberation, will not be encountered. So, social democracy is based, pink, the pinks, is based on a notion of hope which invests in progress. There is the progress of the present towards its own better future. For the critique of political economy, this idea of the present as necessary transition towards its own better future has to be rejected as a mere theology, as a mere belief, as a mere fantasy, 
as a mere imaginary, as something that takes away your responsibility for your own circumstances and it takes away your responsibility to make your own world a better world. Thank you very much. Firstly, thanks very much for the invitation. It's really, it's lovely to be here. I really, really enjoy talking here, I suppose. Um, lovely and lovely as well, because as Anna said, we've known each other for years and years since before she came to, to, to Britain. Um, and, and it's terrific to see the book there, physically there, I'm sure it will be all on be on all your bedside tables by tonight. <laughs> but that's great. I mean, it's really lovely. It's particular. I think it's exciting to see the book. It's an exciting book. It's particularly exciting for me because I think, um, in a way, our, our interests have kind of come together in many in many ways. For the last couple of years, um, I've been wanting to write without actually writing, of course, but it's moving slowly, wanting to write a book called Hope and Crisis. Um, and when Sam here invited me to UCL last, last whenever it was, last spring. summer, spring, <coughs> summer, um, I gave a talk with, with that title. And I'm going on from here to give a, a seminar on the theme of Hope and Crisis. So really, yeah. So... It, 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 which means, I suppose, that uh, um, I don't entirely agree with, with Werner. I mean, I do and I don't. Um, I suppose I feel that hope is something we have to take very seriously, something we have to think about. Bloch, and I must great, and I suppose always have been a great fan of Ernst Bloch, whom I read before ever reading Marx or anybody else, um, said, starts off his book on the principle of hope, saying, now is the time to learn hope. And I do feel that very strongly, not just to hope, it's not a question of hoping, it's a question of learning to hope. It's a question of learning to hope um, which for me means keeping present and thinking all the time about the real possibility of radically transforming society. For me, to learn to hope is to learn to get rid of capitalism and create a different society. It is to learn... In, the, idea, the, the, the significance of learning to hope, I think, has changed fairly fundamentally from Bloch's time. For Bloch, learning to hope, the, the practical way forward was through the party and through taking state power. Um, I would say that, that even if one thinks that would be nice, it doesn't really exist as a practical possibility um, at the moment that we are actually now 
realizing that um, the attempts to bring about the social transformation in that way in the last century failed and generally led to disastrous results. So that to learn to hope as well means to, to, to invent hope, to think about how we think about hope. Um, but I would say it's very important partly because I think if we lose this centrality of hope, then essentially two, two things happen. Firstly is that there is a closing of the mind. And I suppose this is something that I feel, especially when I come to Europe, you know, that there is a, a progressive closing of the mind. To lose hope is to, to put, um, what do you call them? Blinders. Blind blinkers. No? On, on, on your eyes that you actually don't you don't you know what you can con what you are capable of conceiving and the whole conceptual world becomes narrower I think that has been very much the trend in the universities particularly in European and North American universities over the last 20-30 years so I think first that's one reason why it seems to me that hope is central the other thing is that hope is there, even if we say, yes, no, of course it's not just a question of, of, of thinking of hope as being the dear sister of faith and charity, no, that we actually have to, you know, what we need is a, a learned hope, but hope is there as a real force, as a perverting and perverted force, no. So that when Syriza, I mean, Bernard is quite right to talk about Syriza, I think when Syriza came to, won the election, the first thing that Cyprus said was, this is the victory of hope. No. But not only that, um, also if we think of, of ISIS, no, my attention was caught by an article by Emmanuel Wallerstein um, a week, couple of weeks ago, in which he said, well, look, the key to understanding the force of of, of, of ISIS is hope. You know, the perverted hope very easily becomes fascistic. No? And I think so I think it's really it's hope is there as an issue that we have to deal with. And that's why it seems to me we have to come back to to, to Bloch's idea, not just of hoping, but of learning to hope or developing a, what he calls a doctor space learned hope yeah. um, and in that I'm absolutely in agreement with, with, with Anna <coughs> I think that what we're living through at the moment is a very complex interplay of rage and hope that is really shaping the way the world is going and somehow we have to, to, to get that together we have to think yes we live in times of growing rage, growing anger. That's what capitalist crisis means. You know, how do we intervene in that, in that anger, in that rage, to make it a learnedly hopeful rage, one that actually points the way beyond capitalism? Um, and that seems to me one of the important things about Anna's Anna's book that she addresses that she addresses it through um, her, through the whole discussion of, of 
really the idea of, of autonomy as the, the art of organizing hope, the idea of autonomy as, as prefiguration, which I really like a lot, and by doing it in relation to um, these four <coughs> Latin American movements. There really only two things, after that long introduction, only two things that I want to say, I think. One is Latin America, yes, great, you know, place of exciting, exciting movements over the last 20 years. But it does seem to me fundamental to say Latin America, yes, we all live in that Latin America. Latin America is not a distant place across the sea. And I think that's not a criticism of Anna at all. It is a worry about how the book may be read. No, that people may read it saying, yes, no, look at what they're doing over in Latin America. No, I must go and visit Chiapas next summer or you know, <laughs> whatever. Um, and for me, I think one of, the, the, one of the, the most profound things said just after the Zapatista uprising was in a preface written by Antonio Garcia de Leon, a preface for the first... first um, edition of the, of the Zapatista community. Yes, well, actually it was the second. But, uh, and he said, you know, from the moment that the communiques started coming in on the 1st of uh, January and the, the succeeding days of 1994, I felt this great yabasta rising up from inside me, coming from my very guts. I think that's fundamental. It's not that those struggles are there, those struggles are in us, they're in our anger, they're in our feelings, and if they're not, then better not read the book, better forget all about it. The hope is inside us, the anger is inside us, and that's why it makes sense to relate to those struggles, or it makes sense to think about the, the struggles. And that does seem to me very important simply, simply because the whole question of territory, I think, is really a question that we have to think about. I mean, lots of the left and left autonomous movements in Latin America and elsewhere have been talking about the importance of thinking in terms of territory and con <coughs> conquering and creating autonomous territories. And I think that's very dangerous. I think actually that territory, this idea of space as an enclosed space, is, is very much a capitalist concept. And that we have to break it and say, no, it's not that. Because if we start thinking about these Latin American movements as being over there in Latin America, <coughs> then the next question that comes up all the time is, oh, what a pity we can't do that in Europe. No? What a pity, you know. So, you know, well, I do Latin American studies or something, no? but it's kind of a, a get out, isn't it? It's a cop out for us, no? And the and the other way around. I mean, a big argument about that in Puebla just a month or two ago with Raúl Sibeki, who's a very and rightly very influential. Um, 
autonomous thinker from Uruguay, where he was really saying the same thing in the, up, the other way around. You know, how great we are in Latin America. No, but in Europe and North America, really, there's not much hope because people there are so sucked into the system. And we can't accept that. That seems to me we absolutely have to break with that. And I'm sure, um, you know, when you read the book tonight, you know, that that is really something to, to, to have very present. And it talks about these movements in Latin America, I don't mean Latin America. The challenge is to understand that we are in Latin America. You know, uh, that, that our, one thing that we talk about in Puebla, since you mentioned the Puebla School, which is very nice, it's actually my friend Sergio Tischler, who talks about this especially, if we talk about the social flow of rebellion, we must understand rebellion in terms of a kind of a subterranean flow um, that, that keeps on exploding all over the place, in places that all nearly always take us by surprise. Okay, it was Argentina in December 2001, it was Greece in December 2008, and again in 2011, it was Istanbul when 2000, when was it? June 2011, and then strange places like Stockholm and Sofia. So it keeps on taking us by surprise. There's this kind of bubbling of anger through the world that defies geographical classification and defies the notion of territory. And I think that we have to see the <coughs> movements in that context and the question of hope in that context. The other point I wanted to say is simply one that it seems to me the real kind of theoretical meat and problem of the book is when Anna talks very clearly at the end. She has this discussion of hope against value, um, which I think is an, an excellent way of thinking about it. Hope against value, hope against the, 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 the law of value, in other words. <laughs> And I think what we have in Greece at the moment is the most dramatic confrontation possible between hope and value. Hope, okay, is a perverted hope, but as a real hope at the same time, or a hope that a proclamation, a party political proclamation of hope that does actually respond to people's real hopes in Greece. No? So there's the... The, the, the great declaration at the, in, you know, after the, 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 the election win, this is the victory of hope. This is the victory of hope. We are going to defeat austerity. And really, day by day, we've been seeing this confrontation between hope, as understood by Syriza, and austerity, which we can forget about Merkel and the politicians. Austerity is really the, 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 the law of value, the rule of money. It's the rule of the money markets. Okay, there's this head-on confrontation between hope and, and the money market. And I think by now it's really fairly obvious that the money markets are going to win. Now, in this confrontation, hope is going to lose. There's going to be disillusionment. Okay, they may do some exciting things. They are doing some exciting things. But in terms of the, 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 the confrontation between hope and money, money will win. No, and this will lead to disillusionment. It will lead to uh, disillusionment, to cynicism, and quite possibly 
to the rise of support for fascism. I mean, it's very dangerous. And if we say, well, why will, why will value win against hope? It seems to me there are two, the, the, the thing can really be, 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 be answered at two levels. I mean, firstly, and I suppose against Jack, because I have to speak against you, obviously, against what you said. Firstly, because channeling hope into the state sends people home. Channeling hope into the state means that the state says, well, we represent your hope, go home. No. And the state is just, even assuming that they're very well-intentioned, is just doesn't have the power to do it. It doesn't have the capacity to confront the money markets. Okay. If we said, well, okay, supposing we hadn't gone through the state... Is there any way in which we could confront the rule of the money markets with our hope? I mean, through mass mobilizations, for example, you know, through what the balance of class forces that Bernard was talking about. In a way, I think we have to say no. There probably, yes, a lot could be achieved by, through mass, massive mobilizations in Greece and throughout Europe. But at a certain level, I think hope depends not just on mass mobilizations, but it depends on having a material basis where we can actually say to capital, go to hell, we can survive without you, which means building alternative ways of doing things, um, alternative thinking of how we create now um, alternative ways of living which would make the movement of the money markets irrelevant and I think we're not there yet but that's the direction we have to go and I think that's in a way the direction the Zapatistas are trying to go um, and the book is great and do take it home with you and do read it tonight Please thank uh, our four speakers, Ben Bonnefeld, John Holloway, Jeff Weber, and above all, uh, the author of this fantastic book, Anastasia Thank you. Thank you.